Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, based on my DMs and social media, one of the big topics in the world of video games is this rumored, alleged, purported agreement between Capcom and Sony that is floating around the internet that purports to tell you about exclusivity, co-marketing, and other rights and obligations between the publisher of Resident Evil 8, The Village, Capcom, and Sony, and of course their PlayStation brand of products. Now before we get started, there's a few things you're not going to see in this video. Due to the way that Sony has handled leaked information in the past, has handled DMCA takedowns and copyright notifications, whether rightly or wrongly, We will not be showing this specific agreement. We will not be linking it in the description. You can find it. If you are looking for what this agreement actually is in substance, we'll be quoting from only two sections to talk about the substance that I think a a number of people are getting wrong or at least are reading a little bit more hyperbolically than it needs to be read in this agreement. But we aren't going to be using the agreement itself. Number two. Even though we won't be doing that, I do want to make it known to Sony or Capcom or anyone else that's interested in these kinds of things that this is 100% a fair use of this leaked material. You say, hey, that material hasn't been released out into the wild. That is true, but as the U.S. Copyright Act says, the fact that a work is unpublished shall not itself bar a finding of fair use if such finding is made upon consideration of all the above factors. And we will only be commenting on limited snippets of an agreement that is purported to be out there. And hey, if it's not real, there can't be a DMCA takedown notice anyway. But we will, of course, be referring to this as purported and alleged because there is no functional way for us to substantiate what is actually in the agreement. A number of people asked me last night, and this is what I wrote that got a little bit misinterpreted. I tried to correct in various places on social media. I believe it to be an authentic form of legal document based on the language used in scope of issues addressed. Let's break that down for just a second. So I took a look at this. The full version of this was sent to me in DMs late last night. I think it's uh, available to everybody now. And I looked at the scope of things. There are ways to write a legal contract. The job of a lawyer, as you might have heard in virtual legality, is to parade the horribles, to think about the various ways in which one party or another can screw the other one and how we can write around that in provisions in an agreement like this one. And one of the things that I was impressed by that looked to me like a layman wouldn't necessarily be able to draft that way without copying another format is that it addressed that parade of horribles in various ways. We're not going to go into the specifics here. We really don't want to poke the bear. But suffice it to say, in looking at it, it appeared obvious to me that at bare minimum, if somebody were copying and trolling and using this opportunity to get back at Sony or Capcom or whatever they're doing, they based it first on a legal form, on a legal premise, a global co-marketing agreement of somebody's that they then pressed into this service. And unfortunately, that's as far as we can go without a confirmation from Capcom or Sony itself. So please, as you watch this video, look out for news outlets that can potentially go and get anonymous sources, whether it's Jason Schreier at Bloomberg or IGN or GameSpot or someone else, because that's the only way you're going to get full confirmation. And it wouldn't actually surprise me if both sides just said we don't comment on confidential agreements. But... Outside of that, I can tell you it looks in form and scope like it was written by lawyers, but we can't substantiate the rest of the document. That said, as I continue in my tweet, 
it is impossible to detect any alterations that could have been made, including taking things and synthesizing a brand new agreement from multiple provisions. I'll do a video tomorrow, which is what you're watching today, time travel. But this got reported on in various places as Hogue says it's real. Hogue does not say it's real. Hogue says that the form and structure was written by lawyers, which is what I try to clarify here. Hogue says it's definitely a document that is using a framework crafted by lawyers, but it's easy enough to change names, numbers, and even sections that like all anonymously sourced materials, grain of salt still applies. That said, it is worth noting that there's an avenue for all this. If you aren't familiar with what happened to Capcom last year, they had a massive hacking event. A number of pieces of information were leaked out. And so not only is this plausible that there's a method that this could have gotten out, a lot of what is read in this document is frankly something that I would expect to see in a document of this type, including some of the provisions that are most controversial on the internet and especially amongst Xbox fans. So with that as background, let's talk about what this document does because I think it's getting misreported a little bit. First in broad strokes. So I've broken this down. We're not going to go over every section as I talked about. And certainly there are things that are in these lists that you will see on these slides that are skipped for purposes of brevity, consistency, and clarity. But this is what Sony gets. And there are two slides of Sony gets here. They get feature content and technical parity. That's highlighted in orange because we're going to talk about that a little bit more. They get two weeks of DLC exclusivity. If Capcom releases DLC for Village, then it's going to be on Sony first for at least two weeks. They get one week of demo exclusivity, which you can see right now. They get one year of subscription service exclusivity. And again, I've framed that as subscription service exclusivity because that's how it's framed in the agreement. It is, of course, being read as a prohibition on access to Game Pass, which it is. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more as part of this video as well. A right of first refusal on subscription services and Resident Evil products. Now, one thing that hasn't been mentioned that I didn't see highlighted in at least this alleged document is that Sony purports to get a right to negotiate on basically every Resident Evil product. And there isn't an end state uh, in, stated in this document for when that might not happen. Now, the agreement itself has a term which concludes one year after the commercial release of the game, then has some survival period concepts that extend that term for certain of the most important aspects of the agreement. Overall, though, just based on this list and based on what I saw in the contract, it's not written terribly strongly. You might look at something like this, and we'll talk about what Capcom gets and the number there, and say, well, I would expect this to be drafted very tightly, all I's dotted, all T's crossed, and it should be 35 pages long, if you're familiar with any of these agreements at all. And I think a number of people on the internet have come back and said, well, it's only 10 pages of substance, Rick. How can you look at this and say uh, that this is true or this is accurate? And I will tell you just from my experience, and we're going to talk about why I think this makes sense for a deal of this type even more fulsomely as part of this video, that in my experience, you would be very, very surprised at how big deals can get that are essentially contracted for in short form, and especially when the parties have a history of working together. If you have signed multiple contracts with another party, if you've exchanged cash or prizes with that other party, and you haven't been burned for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 
then the tendency is to draft a little bit lighter. You don't need to pay the lawyers as much. You don't need to worry about the other party screwing you because you're both in this boat together. You're both incentivized and you've done deals like this for a long, long, long time. So in general, as parties get more familiar with each other, they're going to lighten up on their contractual requirements. That isn't always the case. I don't think I've ever seen a Microsoft contract that is less than 25, 35 pages, but it is often the case when you get that familiarity from other principles, right? A Sony contract doesn't have to look like a Microsoft contract, doesn't have to look like a Nintendo contract, and that's without even taking into account Sony's a Japanese company and Microsoft is an American one. There are different cultural things that happen in contracts that you can't account for. And there's a number of ways to write these kinds of things in different respects. If you're really, really worried about your two weeks of DLC exclusivity, you might write a page of sections about how you don't want to get burned by the other party. If you aren't that worried, maybe you write it in a single paragraph and maybe even a single sentence, which is what we see in this document. The other thing I see pointed out as part of this agreement that a couple of people come back to me with is typos. There are defined terms that are essentially used and then defined later. There are other things that don't quite match up. The term really isn't stated properly in a number of different sections. And to that, I would also say that that isn't that unusual for multi-million dollar contracts. It isn't that unusual for big companies because as we say in virtual legality, every single person is human. Every person at these big companies, human. Every lawyer at every law firm, whether it's a solo practice or whether it's a giant law firm that only operates on Wall Street, human. And when you write these contracts, you get these kinds of things. You get a parentheses that isn't included when it should be. Check out that opening paragraph if you uh, have a copy of the agreement in front of you. You get to find terms that don't match up. You get some things that are logicals. As I like to say, I think I tweeted out last night, there are a few things I would tweak. I think there are things that can be changed. But if you aren't trying to draft something in a very holistic way, if you aren't trying to pay the lawyers extra, it's very easy to say, okay, I trust Capcom. I trust Sony. We're going to write out what this is and we're going to move forward from there. The other thing Sony gets is really about the advertisement. Prohibition on Xbox and PC solo branding. Can't just go out there from Capcom and say on Xbox or on PC. Prominence in multi-platform branding. They are allowed to advertise with all of the platforms listed, but Sony has certain rules about how big its logo is, where it's going to appear on a multi-platform branded advertisement. A mandate of PS5 version and promotions, like oh, E3, which of course didn't happen. And it's worth also noting that this agreement was signed, at least purportedly, in May of last year. It's also worth noting that the Sony signature isn't on the copy of the document that's floating around. Some people have pointed that out. I will say it's not a deal breaker from my position uh, because there are a number of agreements that my clients have, that other clients have had, that I've had to review that just don't keep the signatures. Uh, and certainly if this was a leak and you didn't have access to the file folder itself, you're going to sign these agreements in general in what we call counterpart, which is going to have separate signature pages anyway. If you don't grab the right version, you're only going to get one. So that, again, Again, not a deal breaker, but of course we can't verify the substance of the document. So their mandate PS5 version and promotions, you're used to seeing this. If you are going to be a marketing partner, you're used to seeing that Call of Duty is going to appear on the PlayStation stage on E3. And in that same location, it's only going to be available on PlayStation 4s or PlayStation 5s. And I think we're all used to that kind of provision. Right to announce and display. As we've seen, they got the right to announce the village on their PlayStation events and on their PlayStation state of plays. They get the right to do all the various things we've seen even over the last couple of weeks. 
And that leads us to what Capcom gets for this long list of things, right? Well, they get first-party advertising. They get things on the PlayStation Network, the PlayStation Store. They get entries on the PlayStation Blog. They get the use of PlayStation social media to advertise this game, and it's valued at $5 million. Now, this is another area where I look at it as an American lawyer, as someone that doesn't trust Capcom, doesn't trust Sony inherently, and I look at that and say, well, there's no schedule of what $5 million is actually worth in this document. It just says Sony's gonna give you $5 million of advertising, and ordinarily, I would like to see a schedule of that. What are you valuing a specific takeover ad on your PlayStation Network at? What are you valuing a PlayStation blog post at? What are you valuing a tweet at? But that's not included in this document, presumably because these two get along, or if you're a little bit more cynically minded, the document isn't real. You could go either direction with something like that. But what's important to note as well in terms of looking at the document on the whole, whether it's true, whether it's not, whether it's fake, whether it's accurate, is that based on this, Sony isn't paying money. A lot of people have tweeted out, oh, Sony's paying money to get exclusivity. Sony's doing all these various things. Sony is paying opportunity costs, right? If it gives a takeover of the PlayStation Network store to Village, it can't give it to Outriders or whoever else. So it is losing the potential to sell that access, to sell a blog post, to sell social media, but it isn't actually taking cash money out of its account and giving it to Capcom, which is the last reason why I look at an agreement that's 10 pages long and is not as fulsomely drafted as maybe you or I would expect a deal of this type. And I say, well, from Sony's perspective, it isn't really worried about a lot of things. It's going to give you advertising. It's a marketing contract. It's just like selling that advertising, only you sold it for these certain rights in Capcom rather than the $5 million. So you probably aren't that concerned because if you're Sony, there's very limited ways that you can get burned by this. Similarly, even though this is a long list of things, it's worth noting that Capcom isn't limited from selling Village on the PC, isn't limited from selling Village on Xbox. This isn't an actual exclusivity where you really have to pay a lot of money. Think of, for instance, Microsoft fans, when Microsoft bought the Tomb Raider series away from Sony for a year, that that's a significant thing to do to actually take it out of the player's hands. All this is talking about effectively is a couple of weeks of DLC exclusivity and promotional stuff, as well as that one year that they can't participate in a business model at Game Pass on a different subscription service. They include other subscription services, but we are, of course, mostly concerned with Game Pass when we have this discussion. So from Capcom's perspective, it's a marketing deal that doesn't do a lot to limit itself. And we'll talk about that technical parity section as well. And basically, they just have to agree to put PlayStation first to show it on PlayStation platforms. And they get advertising that'll drop their marketing need to sell this game by $5 million. And again, if you trust the other party, if you don't feel you're getting your $5 million worth, you call up PlayStation, you have that conversation, they explain to you why they think they have given you the $5 million, and that's what a good working relationship looks like. If they try to burn you on these things, maybe you don't write the document this way the next time. So with that as our baseline, no money changing hands, fairly limited risk profiles really on either side, just based on the list of things, Let's talk about what's got everybody up in arms. So first, let's talk about that parity clause. During the term, and for seven years thereafter, 
Publisher will ensure each version of the game available on PS platforms maintains content, feature, and technical parity subject to material platform limitations with any equivalent version of the game or DLC released on any other competitive platform or PC mobile platform. And this has gotten, particularly Xbox fans online, very concerned about what an agreement of this type does during the term and for seven years thereafter. So the term in this case is one year after the commercial release of Village. So something like until May of 2022 is the term. And then it would go till May of 2029 that this provision would be live and something that Capcom would have to agree to abide by. Capcom will ensure each version of Village available on the PlayStation platforms, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, successor PlayStations, maintains content parity. I think we all understand that. If a DLC is going to be released, it can't only be released on the PC, can't only be released on the Xbox, has to also be released on the PS platforms. Feature parity, and you start to get into undefined terms here, right? One of the natures of drafting something lightly, and we've talked about this in virtual legality before, is you introduce ambiguities into the readings. The two parties here, Sony and Capcom, might know exactly what they intend and mean by a provision of this type. In fact, in contract law, there has to be a meeting of the minds as to what you mean by any given provision. That's what a court would look at if you were having a fight over what something like this meant. Feature and technical parity is probably intended to hit things like ray tracing or even specific resolutions that the platform can support. Say, for example, that the PlayStation supports 4K, doesn't support 8K, or I think probably it does based on the side of the box, but doesn't support a given resolution. I think, I think somebody mentioned that they wanted to have it on a 1440p monitor, and that isn't supported by PlayStation. Let's say they don't support it. Then feature and technical parity subject to material platform limitations doesn't actually limit the game and the development of the game in the way that I think a lot of people on the internet are thinking. The overall thrust of this, the purpose of this, is that Sony sold something. And as I mentioned, it's not a set of money. It's actually an in-kind kind of contribution of advertising materials, but it is the loss of the ability to sell that same advertising to another party. It sold something and it needs to get something. It's going to help Village become more popular than it otherwise would have. It's giving Capcom $5 million in value. And so it needs to get something. And what it's asking for essentially is that you won't specifically give things to other parties that you won't give to us. But that parenthetical subject to material platform limitations is so very, very important. And a number of people that I have seen discussing this provision online have skipped it. Why is it important? Because it is saying what everybody is concerned about. It is saying, hey, you aren't going to limit the Xbox. You aren't going to limit the next Xbox. You aren't going to limit the PC to just what the PlayStation 5 can do. You're going to give us technical parity. You're going to try to achieve the best that our platform can achieve, as well as whatever any other platform is going to achieve. But it's subject to our platform limitations. And notice that parity is a word from a legal perspective that goes both directions, right? If you were to say, hey, I'm going to release the village on Switch and on Switch, it can only do 1080p and 30 frames per second. Parity means you're going to equal that out. But that's not what PlayStation means, obviously. 
So the Switch has its material platform limitations. It's going to be 1080p and 30 frames per second. The PlayStation 5 is going to be, I think right now it's unlocked. I think they're releasing Village unlocked and it's going to run however it runs. And the Xbox version, if it's unlocked, is going to run however it runs. And Capcom has the ability to make it run as good as possible on the platform, subject to the platform limitations that it has, so long as it doesn't do something like, say, ray tracing only on Xbox, if the Sony platform can support it. The other thing that people have asked about is things like uh, quick access that's available on Xbox, maybe even smart delivery if you're moving across uh, generations. I would argue... And again, this is the kind of thing that would come up in a court case if Sony and Capcom went to court over something like this, that actual hardware features that are not mirrored between the two hardware parties and aren't really subject to a lot of development time, that Capcom has to make sure that quick resume is something that is fully supported in this game in a material way, that those hardware features are probably not the kind of thing that Sony is worried about here. And we're actually going to take a look at a Microsoft document that makes that much more clear because it's written much more fulsomely than this document that's floating around the internet. But I do think people get overly concerned about this. This provision doesn't say we're going to hold this platform back. We're going to hold this version back. Now, in any co-marketing agreement, it's worth noting that when you have the obligation to do things like only advertise with the PlayStation 5 version, to have that be the copy that goes out to reviewers, to have PlayStation 5's version really represent your game in the world at large, there is economic incentives to make sure that the resources used to develop that game internally are going to that version before everybody else because that's the version that the world is going to see. So in co-marketing agreements, it's not at all unusual to have the co-marketing partner wind up having the best version because it's what some might call the lead platform, that you're running everything through this because you want to make sure that it is seen and is loved by everybody that gets access to this, and you have to show the PlayStation 5 version to do it. Now, the other portion of the parity clause that I saw brought up is the following. Publisher will not release the game or any DLC on any competitive platforms or PC mobile platform on an exclusive basis, which is actually a function of the first part of this section, right? If we're going to maintain content parity, you can't release it on an exclusive basis anyway, which if you are inclined to believe that this is a fake document, you might say, hey, they're covering this twice. I might say it's belt and suspenders and I might not draft it this way, but it doesn't look that unusual to me. Or offer any additional content or any additional features or benefits to end users of the game on any competitive platform or PC mobile platform on an exclusive basis. And again, the function of this kind of provision, content and features and benefits, is not directed, as I read it, at, hey, my PC can run it in 240 frames per second, and you're not going to let me do that so that it matches up with what the PlayStation 5 or the PlayStation 4 or anyone else can achieve. This focus is really on content and features. And you might get into a discussion about whether or not the PC can do something that the PlayStation can't do, and so it should be allowed, it shouldn't be allowed. But overall, I would say that this is being read too strongly, just like the rest of the provision in respect of parity. The intent here is not to cause the game to underperform on other systems. In fact, that kind of intent is deliberately avoided by this parenthetical. This doesn't have to be here because generally speaking, you could read this provision as exactly as I read it without this parenthetical limitation, but 
the inclusion of it here is designed specifically to avoid something like an antitrust restraint of trade argument or anyone else that I guess might peer in on a document like this from the internet. Subject to material platform limitations. You have to get us what we can get from a PlayStation 5 or a PlayStation 4. But if you can do better on the PC, if you can do better on the Xbox without materially changing the actual feature or content set, then go for it. Now, if you're Capcom and you haven't discussed what any of this means with Sony behind the scenes, you might take extra steps to prevent anything from being different in these versions so as to not risk the loss of the $5 million, to not risk the loss of the next contract for the next game that you want to enter into with Sony on this fairly lightly drafted basis. So you might do something like say, well, we're going to limit the the PC to 60 frames per second. We're going to limit the texture sets uh, to only what the PlayStation 5 can support. You might do that. I'm saying the contract language doesn't necessarily lead to that state, but The words on the page are only the words on the page and the parties in reality have to interpret them and decide for themselves what they want to do based on this language. So if you're concerned about texture sets or frame rates or anything else on the various consoles and PC, you can be. But I'm saying that this contract doesn't read to me as quite the nefarious plot from PlayStation, as you might suspect. And in order to kind of emphasize that point, a number of folks online have brought up that the standard Xbox console publisher agreement, this isn't co-marketing, this isn't exclusivity, this is just what big publishers enter into with Xbox as a way of detailing the terms and conditions that are related to their putting a game on the Xbox ecosystem, covers very similar ground, 9.1.1. Each base game and game feature will have at least the same features and contact content as any corresponding version of a competitive platform product, including localization, subscription, support for record and share, gameplay streaming, remote access, cloud streaming, multi-platform saves, pack-in content, subject to platform limitations. If publisher elects to commercially release a base game, then publisher will commercially release each base game, including publisher subscriptions and game features that are included as part of each such base game, either before or simultaneously with the competitive platform. Subject to hardware and technical limitations and announce availability of development tools at any time after commercial release with respect to any hardware feature updates made to a software title that are available for a console version video game on a competitive platform, publisher will, in its implementation of such features, optimize the performance and technical capability of Xbox console versions in parity with the console version video game on the competitive platform. This is not a non-standard concept. And I understand how you read this provision and you look at things and you say, well, Sony is trying to act nefariously. But in respect of the parity provisions, this is normal. This is Sony saying, I'm giving you something. I want to make sure that as I help make the village, the multinational global phenomenon that we all know it will be, that somehow I don't give you $5 million worth of advertising and wind up with a version that is not very good. And so I'm going to put in all these provisions to make sure that you're dedicated, that you're incentivized, that you're properly motivated to make that PlayStation 5 version as good as it can be. And then subject to material limitations on the platforms, you will go and make everything else as good as it can be. And that's okay. That's what Microsoft does. That's what Sony does. That's normal. You don't want to give things to another party and somehow wind up burned in the process. Now, the other area that people have reflected upon and I think is important is subscription exclusivity. This specific provision here says, during the term, publishers shall not authorize, assist, or encourage any third party to include the game in any competitive platform subscription service, including Game Pass. 
And I think people are rightly concerned, especially Xbox fans, when you look at how Game Pass has performed and the money that Microsoft and Xbox are willing to spend supporting it, that what this reads as is a prohibition on putting this game on Game Pass until at least April of 2022 or May of 2022. And that's the first time that it could even potentially be available on Game Pass. This is also subject, as we will see, to a right of first refusal. For a period of one year after the release of the game on PS platforms, the SIE affiliates, the various Sony entities, shall have the exclusive right of first negotiation and last match to include the game within a PS subscription service. And I think a lot of people look at that and say, well, they don't really mean PlayStation now. They don't really have a Game Pass alternative. They don't have something that they are using this for, but... That's not really up to us. If Sony were to be creating Sony Presents Game Pass on their platform, agreements like this would have to be in place to begin with in any event if they wanted to have that right to go after these games for that service for some period of time. So unlike the kind of blanket statements online that say this is just anti-competitive, this is just a restraint of trade, somebody should sue them for antitrust and all these various kinds of things, to me, what I look at here is actually just the limitation of a business model. This isn't trying to keep Lara Croft off of Sony. This isn't trying to keep Resident Evil and Village off of Xbox. This is just limiting the applicability of that business model for a year so that Sony can, if it wants to, get its ducks in a row to actually negotiate to have it included on a service of its own. Now, if you're from an Xbox perspective and you're an Xbox fan and you love Game Pass and you would hope to see it available on Game Pass earlier, I can understand why this would be disappointing. But again, Sony is giving up advertising space that has some value that Capcom apparently agrees is worth $5 million. And when you give that up, you get something back. You get that marketing, absolutely. You get certain bits of exclusivity. But Sony isn't giving $5 million to Capcom in advertising solely for two weeks of DLC exclusivity. They aren't getting an exclusive deal for the game, and so there are certain things that they get exclusively, and that is a limitation on its availability on other services. The other thing that people have mentioned is, well, this must be a response to MLB The Show, which launched on Xbox Game Pass yesterday, being available on Xbox Game Pass? And the answer to that is, if this agreement is accurate, no. No, it's not. As I mentioned at the top of this video, it was signed in May of last year, at least on the Capcom side, and it was effective as of April of last year. This was Sony saying, we want to make sure that it's not immediately available on a competing service with a competitor that has a lot of money to throw around because that would eviscerate what we have given to you. We would have given you marketing on our platform and we would have not sold many copies on our platform because people would go to it on Game Pass. From a consumer perspective, from a lover of Resident Evil perspective, absolutely, I'm a member of Game Pass. Would have loved to have seen it get for free when it was released on Game Pass on launch day or shortly thereafter. But I can't begrudge a company that is going to give all of this free advertising to another company saying, hey, let's make sure it doesn't absolutely crush our business model in the process. So at the end of the day, when you're looking at these kinds of things, it's worth noting that when we look at a document and it's 10 pages long, both parties aren't thinking that it's going to be able to burn them significantly. So when you're evaluating the parity clause, when you're evaluating the subscription exclusivity clause, when you're evaluating these various other things, 
take it with that kind of prism in mind. This might be true. This might not be true. Certainly, the provisions themselves are frameworked out by a lawyer or lawyers, either in this document as an accurate one or as part of other documents, that those lawyers weren't terribly concerned about drafting a 35-page document, weren't terribly concerned about getting to 9.1.1 on page whatever in the Microsoft document. And this is 100% accurate. This is filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. You have to file these accurately. But, you know, Microsoft, they add a little bit more. Publishing agreement is more significant than a marketing agreement in any event. But this is a document that you might expect from something like this. That all being said, as I said at the top of this video, we can't tell whether the substance of this is accurate. We can't tell whether this is actually how this document, if it was entered into by these two parties, and it certainly seems like something was entered into for marketing purposes on Village, is exactly representative of what that agreement is or how it might be amended. The other thing I might add is that these documents can be amended. That would be a separate document. A First Amendment to this document that changed everything in it would be a separate document that we might not have access to. So there has to be a lot of grains of salt as there is with every bit of anonymously sourced material that we look at in virtual legality or that you look at in the rest of your life. But there are still points of discussion that can be had when we look at these things. The parity clause really isn't the, the bad thing that a lot of people think it is on the internet. I certainly get people being upset about the limitation of the business model, but hey, Having it available on Xbox, even if it's not available on Game Pass, is significantly better than when we were having games that were bought and made exclusive to one console over the other, just with cash money changing hands. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of video games and other pieces of pop culture, music, movies, and television, please consider supporting the channel. We are doing a lot more videos here uh, than I had anticipated when I started this whole thing. So please check out the Patreon, tips at Streamlabs, the store with shirts uh, and mugs and everything else. And if none of that interests you, just consider subscribing, ringing the bell, leaving a comment, upvotes, downvotes, whatever it might be. Engage with it. Engage with the YouTube algorithm. Let YouTube know that you're interested in this type of content. And most importantly, tell your friends that we're out here. We love having these conversations. We love having these conversations with you. Please leave a comment. Tell me how silly I am, how smart I am. Either direction is fine. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.